again, and welcome to finally another episode of the Goat Farm. With you, uh, with you as always is Michael Ducey, your co-host, and my co-host today is uh, finally back from <laughs> back from where were you at in Tibet? <laughs> uh, as always, uh, with me is Ross Clanton. Yeah, I was hunkered down a bit in our transformation. We've had a lot going on the last five months. Yeah, and I myself have had a lot going on as well. Uh, managed to change roles at Chef as well. So now I have a team of six. Uh, and it's funny, it's... Uh, uh, building it's, your I'm, empire. Well, yeah, building my empire. <laughs> but it's also, uh, it's amazing how much work uh, it is to have people working with, that you work with uh, constantly and you're responsible for. Uh, <laughs> and you can't see, of course, I'm using air quotes uh but yeah, it's it's a different challenge, and it's it's definitely super interesting from, I guess, from my perspective. And also, one thing that I'm trying to find out is how do you take some of what we learn and what we talk about in the organization and start to apply or into these enterprise organizations that we talk about on the show, and how do we take those back and apply them not only to um, uh, the way that we work internally, but also how do we uh, kind of teach our customers those things, which was kind of the impetus for the last show. But we'll talk about that here in a second. Ross, what have you been up to? Uh, I've been farming goats. Uh, we've been kind of That's always a our, good thing. Yeah. You know, I figured I'd go with, go with the theme we started this podcast on. And uh, we've been building out our dojo environment at Target. That's been probably consuming the majority of my time. Uh, we've had hundreds of people cycling through there at this point over the last six, eight months and just trying to fine tune how we help people learn how to do all these things and build full stack engineers, get people prepared to move into the the model that we've moved into the new structure, uh, learn the various practices that, that, uh, the, the kind of modern engineering practices we often talk about with DevOps. So that's been fun. It's been exciting. We've been able to collaborate with a lot of folks. Uh, we had, Capital One and uh, Scott Prue from CSG brought a leadership team out. We've had various folks come out and visit us there and do some sharing and collaboration sessions, which has been really cool to just get into deeper learning with with some peers out there, which has been awesome. But it's kept us, it's just kept us crazy busy. That's part of the reason um, I've probably been more guilty than anyone in us not having podcasts lately because I've been just buried and I uh, haven't been doing my part to go pull some people together. So I'm I'm finally back on the horse here, so excited to get a few of them going. Yeah, that's uh, it's super good. So, of course, the last episode we had did a joint episode with Arrested DevOps. Uh, that was actually started because of part of that work. Uh, believe it or not, unfortunate for Matt, uh, Matt and I are on a team together. Uh, <laughs> Matt Stratton over at Arrested DevOps. And so, uh, you know, in traditional speak, you would say Matt works for me. I'd like to say that's... that I'd support Matt. Going back to oh, the episode inverted that we had, pyramid. inverted pyramid. That's right. Going back <laughs> to our episode with Courtney, um, and so it, it's been interesting and it's been a journey. So, kind of the last episode, as we talked about, we didn't have you on Ross, but we'd like, love to get your thoughts. Going back to that idea that I was talking about of kind of taking these principles of DevOps and applying them not only to our internal work, but also how we work and engage with customers. Uh, what I've been finding really interesting is, um, we, you know, we have some little engineering things that the uh, solutions architect team or the pre-sales team does at Chef. And so what's super interesting is, is right now we're in the chicken-driven development phase. <laughs> so you know what the chicken-driven development is, right? 
I remember that was one of the four. I, I was focused more on the uh, the higher value roles. <laughs> so the chicken-driven development is is one of the stories that Jez Humble and Martin Fowler and other people like to talk about of like, how do you do continuous integration? Oh, get, the rubber chicken. Yeah, you get the rubber yeah. chicken and basically whoever has the rubber chicken has yeah. the lock, right? The uh-huh. rubber chicken is the lock, right? <laughs> and so uh, we're doing really, really horrible best practices of, or we're, I'm sorry, we're following anti-patterns in some of the <laughs> development work that we do. But what's interesting is that we're learning the wrong way to do it. And so as we begin to have these conversations with our customers of the right way to do it, it's like, oh, yeah, we did it the wrong way and that sucked. And that was a horrible experience. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's interesting to bring the team through that. And then, you know, take those things that we learn internally. Uh, you know, we use Kanban boards a lot. We're starting to learn value stream mapping and other things like that. And as you start to use those uh tools with your customers and teach your customers those tools, it's kind of a really eye-opening experience. So mm-hmm. I'd like to hear your thoughts. And then uh, we also have John Klein from Assurian on as well. And we'll get John's thoughts on that as well. But Ross, what are your thoughts on the last episode that we had? First off, I mean, e- eating dog food and, and you know, learning the, the practices that, that you want to guide your customers on, I think is super important. Um, a lot of the tools that you're talking about are things that we actually even do in our dojo at Target, the Kanbans, and helping people understand value streams. Um, and I think that stuff's really, really important. I think in terms, the last episode was interesting. I had just listened to it uh, this last week. Um, personally, I always have my guard up with with vendors and from a sales perspective in particular. Uh, I. I probably get 50 to a hundred emails a day of people trying to sell me stuff and lots of calls. And I usually assume not the best intentions and that someone's trying to, you know, convince me to do something that I really don't need to do. And so I, uh, I usually, I usually have kind of an arm's length approach with the people in the sales organization. Personally, I try to work with the engineering organizations at, at uh, vendor partners that I work with, because I feel like you can really get down to the core of what you need to um, to, to, to kind of solve the problems you need to solve. Having said that, I've 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 had really good relationships with with some vendor partners, and it, when I have, it's been because I feel like the people trying to sell me stuff. First of all, you don't you don't feel like you need to go take a shower after you talk with them. And, and that's like a, that's almost, that that's a, I don't know how to describe that like characteristic that some salespeople have, but some have it and you just know it. You can feel it when you're interacting with them, whether, you know, that you've got kind of the slimy used cart salesman feel or whether you feel like someone's trying to actually help you. Um, but if you actually walk away from those conversations feeling like they're genuinely listening, they're trying to help you solve your problems, they're layering in some thought leadership, some things you maybe haven't thought about. And it isn't just, I got to get to the bottom line. I got to get to the sell. I got to get to the sell. I think also sometimes some sales, uh, some people in sales roles, I think do a better job at taking the long-term view with their customers and not, um, not trying to close the immediate deal. And I think that, to me, that's really important as well. And I think a lot of that has to do with how, how companies incent their people too. So if you're, if you're incenting your people to have more of an ongoing relationship and it's not so driven short-term by, by making, you know, short-term sales, 
I think that can have a lot to do with the actual relationship and, and the effectiveness you're going to have with, with your customers. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we were just talking before we got on tonight to talk about this. We were talking about a, an incident that I had. So I actually had a new relic call me today. And uh, I saw this number and it was a Bay Area number. And for whatever reason, I guess I was lonely and I decided to answer the phone. And uh, <laughs> a couple years, probably like three years ago when I was working at another company, I had installed New Relic because we were trying to figure out, you know, what's kind of like the modern stack look like. And I installed New Relic and I put it on like a server that I have running here at home. And for the last three years, it's been reliably running and sending a report. And every Monday, I get a report from my server that I no longer even look at anymore. <laughs> and what I was funny, what was funny is like she called me and I'm like uh, I'm talking to her and uh, I'm like, yeah, I like installed this three years ago and forgot about it. And um, later, you know, we had a little bit of a conversation, and she's like, well, we have a pretty low pressure sales organization. I'm like, well, obviously, it took you three years to call me. <laughs> That's pretty low pressure. That's pretty low <laughs> pressure. Yeah. So, John, um, welcome to the show. It's very excited to have you on. Uh, what are your thoughts and what are your experiences with salespeople? And have you seen a shift uh, in the industry as we move more towards an open source model, communities backing up um, uh, software vendors a lot more and having a very open community? Uh, what's been your experience? Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, it's funny you guys say that about especially Ross talking about having to take a shower afterwards. I, I know that one all too well, especially being in the infrastructure space where, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of large sums of money being thrown around on stuff like, you know, servers and storage and network gear. Right. So yeah, I, I've, I've definitely dealt with some of those guys. Um, and it, it is, it is enlightening dealing with some of these other uh, companies out there who have very low pressure salespeople and I actually just got off the phone today with uh, with one vendor that I was working with and you know they were like yeah it's cool I mean I, we'll we'll do whatever you need us to do you know we're just looking to uh, to build our company and uh, and you know that was kind of their spiel which was which was nice right to breath of, breath of fresh air um, <clears throat> but also you know I, I also kind of look for for somebody a lot of times even if if the sales org itself is a little bit more pressuring you'll find guys uh, and, and, you know, you guys were talking about dealing with some of the engineering groups. Um, you know, the sales engineers, a lot of times they're a little bit more down to earth, but also I, I kind of look for people who are just there to teach us something. Right. Um, I heard, uh, heard it said once, you know, I look for the heart of a servant or heart of a, a teacher that is. Um, so I, I kind of take that approach when I'm dealing with salespeople, you know, just to kind of, keep myself at arm's length until I, I figure out whether or not they're there to sell me something or teach me something. Cause the guys who want to teach you something typically are the ones who, who seem to be, uh, be about helping you. Right. And they don't care if, if it's their solution or another one. Um, yeah, so. no, for sure. And, and what's interesting is, is that chef, that's definitely something that we kind of take from, uh, Adam Jacob, one of our founders, for sure. He always has this attitude of like, Hey, if you're using Papa, if you're using Ansible, if you're using this other tool, at least you're doing something and at least, at least you're moving your organization forward. And maybe in a year, maybe in two years, you'll give us a call and realize that the you'll hit the limitations of those products and you'll come to us as his goal. The other interesting thing that both of you said that I thought was interesting was this idea of in, engaging with the engineering organizations. And when the engineering organizations are highly involved in the respective communities, 
I think it helps a ton, right? I mean, we have tons of people who are on IRC that work in our engineering organization and our customer-facing teams. Uh, we have a lot of people at Chef that are involved in Twitter and stuff like that, and everybody is monitoring. Um, for a long time, it was OpsChef, the hashtag OpsChef, and if somebody tweeted something negative with OpsChef, it immediately would go into one of our HipChat channels, and somebody would be engaging that person trying to solve that person's problem, right? Versus kind of the old traditional model of like, well, that's just one more body. We just need to try and bury. It's probably the worst <laughs> analogy I could have picked. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, the, it's interesting though how open source has really changed the game and changed the way that just the, the engagement model and how, how consumers of software both work with the producers of it and even themselves become the producers of it. I mean, it, it, this whole ecosystem around software now is just so different. And, you know, I think back to in the past, how hard it had been to get to the expert uh, on a product. And, you, you know, you had to work through the layers of, of, you know, the support organization and the escalation paths you would have to work through with some of the big vendors, you know, it would take VP level calls and tons of pain for your business for you to finally get to someone that could actually help you and the, the code was always closed so you could never actually get at anything yourself or go and the get communities up. were closed as well right i mean right. we used to work at one of those vendors a vendor that you used to use yeah. and it was it was totally closed and it was very hard to find out what you needed to know and now yeah. a lot of times when you go out and try and find a problem with kind of the next generation of software you're probably getting your question answered by somebody who doesn't even work for that company if you yeah. ask a question on Twitter or a forum or something like that, stock exchange, et cetera. Yeah. The thing, one thing that's really interesting to me too, with, with this kind of shift in this movement, I think, I think a lot of vendors have um, cashed in for a long period of time, just collecting that, that annuity that they get every year, the maintenance contracts and, you know, these massive support payments and just killing these enterprises are just getting taken to the bank on their, their licensing and maintenance when you start looking at this stuff. And it is it, like that is changing. And that the challenge, though, is 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 a lot of enterprises have grown accustomed to having that. Like you've got it. You've got that throat to choke you, whether whether you're actually getting the value out of that support contract or not. Many people feel like they have to have that because it's kind of what they've always had. And the reality is, is we're moving into a world where that's far less important. It's far more important to have a strong community around something, a way to get at answers, a way to contribute back. Um, I think the way that vendors structure these types of ongoing contracts has to change so that there's more actual value add to justify um, the money that companies have to pay for some of this stuff. Yeah, what's interesting is is I saw an article, the whole Oracle mess, right? So the whole Oracle mess is um, basically what's happening is, uh, and we're on video, which I like the video because we can cue off of each other a lot better. Yeah. And so John yeah. is making faces, as I mentioned, Oracle. Um, <laughs> I, love, I love working with Oracle. I work with Oracle, and they're a great partner of ours. He's not only making faces, he's actually squirming in his chair right now. He's actually squirming in his chair. Um, maybe we should start doing the video recordings like uh, Arrested DevOps does. So what they're actually doing is they're going to people who have large VMware farms, and they're basically saying that if you run Oracle on one VM, you have to license all of the cores in that vSphere cluster. 
or all of the memory in that vSphere cluster. Because potentially you could run Oracle on all of those machines. And so they took Nestle to court over it and they wanted Nestle to pay $100 million in Oracle license fees. And so now that's their new strategy is to try and do that. And then what's super interesting is... is I don't know how new that strategy is. Well, it's not new. It's actually <laughs> been out there for a while. Um, but people are finally starting to get wind of it. And so it's just, it's like very much like, as you said, you know, taking people to the bank of like, those days are over, right? Uh, mm -hmm. They're definitely trying to do that as a, as a way to make that long tail survive as much as possible and try and get as much money from those customers as much as possible. Because at that point, you know, you're locked in. It's your database vendor. Yeah. I actually think that these licensing strategies of these large vendors has been the catalyst that has helped the open source movement take off in the last five five years or so because the reality is when when these web what were web startups these big web 2.0 companies you know the amazons and the, the netflixes the googles etc of the world when they started they had to scale so freaking fast when they suddenly realized the, the type of infrastructure and the type of licensing they need at scale like you had no choice but to innovate and engineer your own solutions because you would have you would have been crushed under the weight of your licensing models with the big vendors it just yeah. wouldn't have worked yeah yeah exactly uh let's get into uh talking to john a little bit enough about what we talked about last time let's talk to john so john uh welcome to the show uh you work at Asurion. tell us a little bit about what you do at am i saying it right insure uh, yeah yes Asurion. yes Asurion. okay <laughs> sorry i've had one beer and so, like, I just want to make sure that nothing's being uh, slurred at this point. Uh, no, so no, tell, you're good. Good. So tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, sure. So um, Assurian as a whole, uh, most people probably know us for our mobile device protection. Uh, it's basically, you know, insurance that you would get through most of the major carriers. Um, in uh, in the U.S., we've also got a, a decent hold uh, foothold over in uh in Japan, <clears throat> but um, we also do some other stuff, um, some cooler stuff uh, than just a, you know straight uh, insurance. But um, one of those is uh, you know we, we create mobile apps um, and try to give people some insight into their phones, like what it's doing battery usage wise and storage wise and stuff like that. Um, and we're trying to actually use that to engage customers as well to say, hey, you know uh, this version of this app that you've got that you use all the time um, isn't quite compatible with the. Uh, the next version that of, uh, of the OS that's on your phone that might be coming out. So you might want to hold off on updating, uh, you know, your phone OS until the, the app comes out. Um, and, and we also do a premier support product as well <clears throat> that, uh, that we can bundle in with, uh, with the mobile insurance. Uh, and I kind of, uh, I kind of equate it to really just having somebody, uh, like, like one of us, a techie, right. To, to call, like, it's like your techie buddy that you can call up and say, Hey, how do I hook this new HDMI or uh, you know this new TV up to this new Blu-ray player that I got? I can't get it to work. You know, so that basically kind of those calls you feel from your grandmother, yeah, well, exactly. or grandfather, yeah. right? To be fair, yeah. yeah, I actually got my mom to sign up for it because <laughs> <laughs> you want to. Hopefully, she doesn't listen to this. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm sure she'll listen to this one, and I'll get a smack on the head for it. But. Uh... <laughs> Because you were That's tired okay. of her asking questions, and I understand that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> my so trick that... was my trick was is that I basically went and said, "Well, I don't work on PCs. I work on servers that are like kind of behind the scenes, and you don't really know, and they're totally different." Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
I mean, plus nowadays you're getting pretty rusty too, right? I mean, I, I, I almost have the need to go down to my, my PC support guys. That, that's why I put Linux on my laptop because I'm a Linux guy. I was just tired of dealing with all the, the Windows issues that I was having. So, <laughs> so why don't you tell at us a, a little bit about what you're doing at uh, uh, Asurian and talk uh, a little bit about what you're doing from a DevOps perspective and kind of the transformation that you're seeing or what you're uh, going through right now. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> so we've, uh, I came into the mix, um, through, uh, through an acquisition, um, an acquihire, I would say. And, uh, essentially, um, I, uh, I started managing the, uh, the Linux team at, uh, at the company and was kind of in charge of merging those two teams together. So it all kind of started, uh, at least for me when I kind of went looking for ways to better manage the work that we had, it was kind of, you know, there was 20 people across the globe and, um, trying to keep everybody kind of in sync with what everyone else was doing was really difficult, that sort of thing. Our ticketing system was not the best in the world either. Uh, and so we were kind of just a standard old Linux ops team. Um, and I kind of set out to change that and started doing some research and, you know, found Kanban and stuff like that. And then went off to, uh, ended up finding the Phoenix project and, you know, went down the rabbit hole of chasing podcasts with Gene Kim on them and then found other people that I liked and, you know, ran across some other folks as well. But, uh, really started talking to um, uh, some of our higher-ups. And the VP, uh, we had a new VP that came in uh, over the infrastructure and operations um, kind of sect. And we, uh, we really started, uh, you know, he was a younger guy, and, and I could tell that he was a progressive guy. So I started trying to get in and, and have some one-on-ones with him and talking to him about some of the stuff that I had found. I ended up sending him, you know, some, some good reads and uh, – you know, stumbled across some, some videos online, uh, you know, the, the Spotify culture videos, I'm sure most of you guys have seen, if not, check awesome them out. Videos. Yeah, yeah. We should uh, link just, those in the show notes, Ducey. Those are good. We should, yeah. <clears throat> There's a lot of good stuff in there. A lot of it's kind of crazy because they've been doing it for a long time uh, comparatively. But um, at any rate, you know, I just kind of sent it to him because I'm more of a future state, hey, where are we headed kind of guy. And he took a lot of it to heart, and we started kind of splitting up our teams um, and going the cross-functional matrix sort of route um, and just trying that out. Um, and that's kind of what led us to, uh, to the state that we're in today, where we've been doing the, uh, the cross-functional team thing for, for a little bit and tried to kind of align those, those teams with the, uh, the actual um, application stacks that they supported. So... You know, and I, and I had done that with my Linux team um, just to try and give us a little bit of focus, right? To say like, hey, you know, you four, you guys are on front office applications and you four, you guys are worrying about, you know, these back office applications and you guys are worrying about kind of the, the engineering stuff. And then we had plans to maybe rotate around and stuff like that. Didn't really know where to go with it, but we're kind of just experimenting with splitting that up and splitting folks out. And when you say, it, uh, John, when you say cross-functional, how cross-functional do you mean? So yeah, no, no, it's a great question. Um, so for starters, uh, like we took our giant front office application operations group, which kind of consisted of people all across the gamut. It was you know folks that knew IIS really well, um, folks that knew Tomcat really well, Apache, you know what I mean, and that sort of thing. Um, and it was all just a big you know a, a bunch of different teams that kind of handled the different. Like there were middleware people, and then uh, this other group that that did all of the the sort of front office application stuff. Um, and so what we ended up doing, it, we started off with our, our future state platform group, um, which was managing our, 
you know, this, this newer set of, uh, this newer application stack was supposed to kind of take over for the legacy apps that we had. Um, so we, we kind of split that up by, you know, just sticking some folks in there from each sort of area of, uh, of you know, from each specialty, basically. Uh, so we had, you know, there was like a, a lead and he was like the really, really solid Linux Apache Tomcat sort of dude. Um, we put some middleware folks in there, some DBAs um, and that sort of thing. So we kind of started out with just this application support focus. Um, and I also inserted, you know, a, a, a Linux engineer into that group as well. So that took care of a good bit of it. So you're definitely um, and, going down like the project team route or are you just focused on like cross-functional teams from a solely ops perspective? So it's more or less a, right now, the we're, we're kind of expanding our area of influence, right? Um, since we were under one specific VP uh, and his job was basically all the infrastructure and operations folks, it kind of limited us, right, to the amount that, you know, to actually getting folks like developers in there um, and that sort of thing. So, and, and it really depends on on the business unit as well. So one of our business units is a little bit more progressive. Uh, they were actually another acquisition um, out in the Bay Area, right? So a lot of the developers and stuff like that were, you know, kind of excited for stuff like this to be happening. So those, those folks kind of turned into more of a app support plus, uh, build and release, um, that sort of thing, and aligning those with development teams, um, what we kind of call journey teams um, in that group. And so it's kind of just, you know, just beginning in terms of our organizational change to start, you know, heading us in that direction. Um, yeah. And the cool thing is it's really kicked off a lot of that that mindset change and, and, and people are getting interested about the culture change that needs to happen. Yeah, no, so what's interesting about what you're saying is um... – it goes back to this talk that Adam, going back to Adam Jacobs again, he gave a talk or he's given a talk several times, this idea of choose your own adventure talk. And he basically puts up, I think it's like nine topics and you mm -hmm. basically choose what you want him to talk about for the next 10 I minutes. Like, I like no asshole rule one personally. Right. So no asshole rule <laughs> is one of them. I forget what the other ones are. I think continuous delivery might be one of them. DevOps is one as well. And what he talks about in the DevOps world is not necessarily that you need to necessarily have uh, cross-functional teams or project teams where you're bringing in developers. Well, that's the ideal world. But you can definitely get started by making more cross-functional teams in the ops or infrastructure space as well to where the security and networking people are working more closely with the database people or the middleware people or the uh, you know system engineers that do the operating system and so forth. And it sounds like that's basically what you have, have started on from a journey perspective. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's been pretty interesting how it's, it's shaken out, right? We found, if anything, it just highlights the gaps, right, or where the pain points are and kind of shifts around those bottlenecks, right? So, you know, whereas before the Linux team was, was historically the, the bottleneck um, because, you know, people are waiting for us, like we're the face, right, mm -hmm. or we're, we were the face of of that because they're, oh, well, I'm waiting for the system build, waiting for the system build, right? But, um, you did know, you guys coordinate all the, uh, all the other stuff that had to go on the server, did it all funnel through you? Yeah, like a lot of there, it. The database, all that stuff? Um, not, not ter I mean, it, it kind of depends on the situation, right? I mean, I, we were installing prereqs and, you know, doing all the system configs and, mm -hmm. you know, going have to come back and do IP tables rules and, you know, user access requests and all that kind of jazz. But, really all the installs were being done by the application folks. 
you know, it was just this for somebody to get for, for a, a, a system to be up and running with code on it, it would take, you know, something crazy like three months, right? Between waiting for firewall rules and waiting for the systems to be built and waiting for the databases to be installed and stood up. You know what I mean? It was just, it mm-hmm. was, it was crazy. So that's, that's one of the reasons that we started doing that. It's like, well, let's at least put a Linux guy in with these folks so that they don't have to be throwing tickets back and forth into the general queue to wait for access requests to go through and stuff like that. <laughs> so, you know, just trying to break down those, those barriers, wherever the dependencies were. It's such a familiar thing. problem. I, <laughs> I mean, we, we dealt with that. We've dealt with that at Target. Every enterprise, it, it still blows my mind how pervasive that problem has been in enterprise IT. Yeah. yeah. But it's the, it's the whole mindset, right? That, that centralized IT is the way to go, but nobody realizes that it doesn't scale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Like, so what's interesting <laughs> is the idea was always to try and make it like a utility or a commodity uh, and try to exploit economies of scale. Mm-hmm. And it was basically like, well, we can be like Amazon and we're a service that you just go to and you get your IT services, right? But what it turned out is like it basically made this tower of control and tower of slow and also <laughs> the department of no as well. And it just it just didn't work. And And also the expertise that you have in your organizations are not the same that the expertise that Amazon can get in into their organization, right? And so it's just a, a whole different play. But, I don't yeah. think the, I don't know that expertise is is the problem per se. It's the model is just fundamentally flawed. I think you know when we when we being the industry went down this whole journey over the last fifteen years of you can locally optimize everything and that's going to allow you to achieve these economies of scale and you can you can kind of drive down the cost of each function and all this stuff is just going to magically come together and you're going to get you know, lower costs, you're going to be efficient. Efficiency is the word that I, I hear so many companies use. And I actually, I hate that word. I, I like effectiveness, but I, you know, I think it's pre-wired in a lot of leaders' minds to use the word efficiency. And that's like, that's the value proposition for like an, an enterprise infrastructure organization, especially. And um, then you look at companies like Amazon and yeah, they're quite efficient at this point and they're super effective too, right? And that's because they figured out this model and just like the rest of the world is now figuring out where, you know, the the nature of all the parts in your IT organization is a very systemic problem. Like these things are all interconnected and you've got to figure out how to optimize how you flow through all of that stuff. And what's cool is everyone's, you know, everyone's talking about it now. We're all starting to figure it out and everyone's on this journey. That's what makes this podcast fun is these are the types of conversations we get to have with people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, for sure. It's about the weight. A lot of it's about the weight states, right? I mean, it's, if you look at it from a lean or, or system thinking perspective, <clears throat> that's one of the biggest things that, that, that I, I took away from it, especially when you work through like a, a full blown, um, uh, not journey map, but, uh, yeah, what's it called? Value stream. Yeah, yeah, value stream map, right? And, and start actually looking at the weight states versus how long it should take. Yeah. <laughs> That's what really did it for me. Um, was, that was kind of my aha, aha moment. It's like, oh, wow. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I knew it, right? Inherently, I knew, but I just didn't know how to kind of put it on paper or, or you know, figure it out with math. <laughs> 174 days for 12 hours of work. <laughs> yeah. That's a value stream I'm familiar with. <laughs> yeah, mind blowing. <laughs> 
Well, and, um, and, and what's super interesting is, is when you start to look at things, uh, kind of going on a tangent on value streams, what's super funny is that when you end up going down that path and exploring things in that way, most people have never realized all of the waste that's in the system, right? Yeah. I mean, like all of the handoffs and all of the steps and all of the processes that, that just don't provide any value. Yep. Negative yeah. value. Yeah, it's it's, it's so, crazy how wasteful. So I'd like to hear both of your perspectives on that. So what happens is that what what is your experience when you basically put up this big map of waste and you're like, hey, this is all crap we shouldn't be doing. Uh, like, <laughs> what are people's reactions to that? Is it usually positive or is it a little defensive and then they come around to acceptance? Boy, I've seen a lot of different reactions to that. I think a lot of it depends on the state of your organization and the culture and how willing are, are you know, how ready is your culture to expose their problems and talk about them so they can fix them. Because it's a value stream map will definitely expose all your problems. It's hard to ignore what you see on, on, on those actual documents. Generally, I think there's a little disbelief or, or even maybe some initial resistance. Uh, but, but, you know, once, once the values of the organization starts to change and they start to appreciate lean um, and agile and DevOps and a lot of these different kind of transformational movements that are happening right now, then, then the conversation does change. And, and you do see people, you know, look at those for what they're worth, which is a, what they're intended to be, which is a, a learning tool to help you figure out where you can improve yourself. You know, can, really it's all about continuous improvement when you get into the lean space. So yeah, I think it's a journey people have to go through when they see those. What's cool at Target is we use value streams, you know, more frequently now. Uh, they were, you know, lightly used, I would say two years ago. And I see people using them as improvement tools all over the place. And they'll, they'll talk about their, you know, they're starting the state they were in and the state they're at now. What, what I think is interesting is when you, when you layer in, you know, configuration management and continuous delivery and all these kind of new practices uh, and you get people to actually think about automating the configuration end to end and the, the, you know, the deployment end to end, you know, the, the value stream improvements become quite dramatic to the almost, almost to the point where it's, you know, unbelievable for folks at times. But I, I mean, I've seen a lot of value streams go from many months to, you know, less than five minutes because yeah. you took, you took all the hops and all the wait time out of all these steps and you just made it a fully automated process that happens in five minutes. John, and, do you use uh, value streams? I'm oh, sorry to cut you off. Uh, John, do you use value streams in Assurian or is it more of an informal process? Um, it was more of an informal process. So um, we have a practices group, kind of like Ross's group. Um, and what I ended up doing, and, and I, this actually kind of dovetails into uh, one of the things that, that we were going to talk about tonight anyway, but was the, uh, we did a flash build. Um, I kind of stole that concept from, uh, from the target guys. Um, we like it to it, be stolen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a good one, man. Um, and so we, we kind of sat down and said, hey, how long does it take us to get an environment out the door for this future state platform, right? Um, and it's still kind of a, it's still a monolithic application. Um, so we've still got standard, you know, middle tier with a database and, uh, and then there's, uh, 
um, some application servers and you know load balancers and that sort of thing. But <clears throat> I kind of I brought as many people as I could together. Um, that cross-functional team I mentioned before, so all those folks plus uh, plus a bunch of Linux engineers and the process guy, uh, an agile coach basically, and um, and some other folks. And that's when we that's when I got my first exposure to actually doing one on my own. And and I had heard of them like on you know on a couple other podcasts. And I said I said to the agile coach I said you know can we do a value stream map? I think that would be helpful for us. Um, and it's funny because everybody knew that it took really long time to get, you know, it took a really long time to get stuff out, but they didn't really know why. They just knew that we had to wait and then do some stuff and then wait and then do some stuff and then wait. And um, kind of being able to visualize that was really cool. And the most, the most fun uh, about that whole process for me was the fact that, uh, you know, we had some, some upper management in um, from, uh, from our corporate office and, uh, and they, uh, they stopped by, right, to kind of check out what we were doing. And it was funny because it, it went from like an arms crossed, like, you know, what, what are we doing? Why are we spending the time on this right now? Why aren't we just building stuff? What are, you know, from one of those sort of attitudes. And then at the end, it was just kind of, you saw their eyes open and go, oh, my goodness, no wonder <laughs> this stuff takes us so long. Um, <laughs> So I, I want to make it a uh, you know a, a more regular practice, but <clears throat> you know at this point I don't know how much is being done. Um, I'm sure some of the practices guys are using it, uh, but I haven't quite yet with my team. Yeah, and and even at, at Target too, I'd say it's not a formalized practice that that we're doing across the board. But I think as more people have, more teams have really embraced DevOps, it, they just start naturally kind of picking that up as a tool that that they're going to use, and, and we. We've definitely guided some teams there in the dojo too, so that helps. Yeah. Uh, one, <clears throat> one thing with the flash build, uh, just because you know we probably talked about it in one of our earlier episodes. I'll I'll maybe briefly uh, give the history of that for our, for our listeners in case they're not aware. So the origins of that we created when we were still in the really siloed model where you everyone was organized by function and to like get anyone to get you'd have to work across ten or twenty queues to get anything done. And we're like, man, if we could just pull these people together cross-functionally and have a kind of structured agile approach and get some experts in there, we could we could build some amazing stuff really fast because we could cut through all of this stuff. And so we kind of branded it Flash Build. It was like um, half Scrum, half Flash Mob. It was kind of the idea is everyone just comes together and you build some cool stuff and, and there's, a, there's some structure and discipline to it. And it worked really, really well. We used it a lot more a couple of years ago when we were more in that model. Uh, and it, it worked well to get stuff built really quickly where, where it didn't work, which was part of our initial goals, where it didn't work as well as we initially thought it would, was driving more sustained learning. And part of the reason is it's just too short of a time period. So usually we would do them for like one day or two days. Uh, and so we had to evolve to some some longer term coaching practices to drive more sustained learning on how to build things differently. But we still use them today at Target as a, as a way to, when we do want to pull like a cross-functional group together and kind of collaboratively go at getting something built really rapidly, it's a really great way to do it. And so, yeah, it's, it's still in use. It's cool. We've seen other people uh, like John start to use it, which I think is awesome too. Yeah. It was, uh, it was worked out really well for us. I mean, we, um, it, it actually made it all the way up into our CIO staff meeting, which was really cool to hear. Wow. Um, so my Apple coach ended up doing a presentation um, up there. And it, I think it's actually kind of started to, to make, you know, the, the execs start thinking about this kind of stuff and realizing that, you know, Hey, we might be doing, doing things a little bit wrong, um, which was really cool. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next is you're more on the practitioner level. So uh, a lot of times we see these DevOps transformations get started at a very low level practitioner level. I know definitely at Target, uh, being somewhat involved with that kind of transformation that went on there, it very much started at a practitioner level mm-hmm. uh, and started to show results to the higher ups. And then the higher ups were like, wow, this does actually produce results. So let's talk about this more, right? Um, what's been your experience as far as getting those higher ups involved and uh, their reactions? It sounds like the CIO meeting and the flash build that seemed to go really well. Are there other experiences like that? Um, it's been hit or miss, and it really just depends <clears throat> on the background, right? I mean, I'm sure you guys have had the same experience where some folks are a little bit more hesitant to change um, and want to keep doing things, you know, the old way and the way that they're used to. Um, so, you know, I, I mentioned my VP. Um, he's been awesome about a lot of this stuff and, and really open to things. Um, but we've had other other instances where folks are just, they're not really into it. You know, they, they don't see the value. They just don't understand why we can't just get stuff done, right? Um, and so I've actually been thinking a lot about that specifically uh, and uh, thinking about taking uh, one of the other approaches that, that Ross and his team um, took with, you know, starting to do not only internal conferences myself, but but also uh, doing a, a targeted executive management level uh, sort of meeting slash sharing session um, and really getting getting things out on the table and trying to kind of facilitate that. So. I've just started thinking about that. I don't really know I'm going to go with it, but yeah, I mean, overall, um, you know, from my perspective, right, because my VP is very open and, and progressive and whatnot, it's it's been a lot easier for for me to kind of get this stuff going. Yeah, wherever you can start to get the message driven more across the organization, that like that's the next big hurdle, probably, is what it sounds like. Yeah, challenging yeah. stuff. Yeah, scaling that up, right? I mean, that was kind of the theme at the DevOps Enterprise Conference as well was how do we scale this thing? And I, I think that's what we're going to be focusing on more this year is scaling up DevOps at, at our at our company. And, and I've, you know, I'm trying to kind of help establish relationships across uh, across VPs to really help bubble that stuff up from the bottom. And that's, that's just the approach I'm taking. So I'm just trying to rally up with the folks that I know are, are progressive thinkers and, and figure out how to get in with them and, and align with them on things. Yeah, and, and the one thing that we have found, and I think it's kind of a recurring theme, and Ross and I were going to do a, a show on kind of recurring themes or actually a series of shows, so hopefully we're able to get that done. But one thing that I hear you say is this whole um, uh, starting small and going, and then once you start small, you prove a little bit of success, then you have to take it and expand it out to the larger organization. What we tend to find that works really, really well is um, killing them with data, right? Mm-hmm. So you can argue emotions all day long, but it's much, much harder to argue with data when it actually shows like a, a real improvement. Code yeah, wins arguments. <laughs> we've had some pockets, right? I mean, um, we've got some folks that are out there using Docker right now. Um, they took a pure DevOps approach with uh, a new program that they stood up because they got to start from scratch on a new application. So they all they all read a, a lean startup together and just you know went to town um, and you know everyone's everyone's able to see the fruits of their labor right and the amazing transformation that that there was in that department because um, they're rewriting an application that just you know we we started with a commercial off the shelf app and it just didn't work out um, it was for our premier support uh, services and they were kind of circumventing the system and just going out and using Google right instead of contributing to a knowledge base in the call center uh, because they're like, well, I can get, 
I can find my answer online. I don't need to use this tool. Um, so it's really been about trying to capture that stuff uh, and figure out, you know, how to scale up right the, that call center. And and it's been it's been working out really well. They did, you know, a, a really slow um, roll. They they tested it out with a, a small uh, POC with like one or two agents and and took that MVP approach. And now they're going back and kind of refactoring things and, you know, fixing some of the, the shortcuts that they had to go uh, and, and, you know, leave as technical debt. But, you know, we've got stuff like that going on where these guys are, they're, they're kind of the, um, you know, the golden child, so to say, <laughs> of the uh, of the whole group. And <laughs> it's really, that's why I'm adamant about doing these internal conferences. I think we just need to get out in front of folks and say, hey, look, this is the cool stuff we're doing. You can put, You can download the source code of this here. Yeah. Celebrate them, build, build community where you can. I think that's, that's kind of the key is how can you get them connected to others and find the people that are excited, find the progressive people. It sounds like you're, you're doing all the right things. Yeah. Um, And in in an org of several thousand, there's no way you know what the other person is doing across the room, right? No, you have no idea, let alone when you go into a larger organization and you have many, many offices and stuff like that. And people are just spread throughout. So yeah, really, really sharing that knowledge internally is really important. Yeah, the only other thing that we've really been doing, and you know, just to kind of wrap up, is is the uh, my team is was kind of created right out of uh, the need for setting some folks aside um, and saying, hey, we need to dedicate some people to moving the business forward or moving IT forward. Really, we saw a lot of adoption out on uh, some of our you know our public cloud friends, and really it ended up uh, uh, kind of opening the eyes of of RVP as well to that and saying, hey, why what can we do to kind of speed things up um, internally. So I've actually put together a, uh, um, a cross-functional infrastructure team um, with some Linux guys and Windows guys, network guys, uh, uh, virtualization guys as well um, to kind of, you know, cross, uh, cross-functionally iterate to, to awesome, I guess I would say. Um, so nice. it's been cool, man. It's been, we've been working using Scrum and it's kind of the first foray into a true cross-functional team in the infrastructure group itself, not operations. Um, and so we're, we're just starting to build out some APIs for infrastructure and, you know, looking to use uh, microservices architecture for most of our stuff. So yeah, we got some exciting stuff going on. How's the team like it? They love it, actually. <clears throat> I had my doubts. I, there were a few people that were like, I thought that they were going to resist the change and stuff like that. And I got them in and kind of, I did what I called a, a uh, what my agile coach called a, a journey map. Um, it just mapped out. This is, this is the flow diagram, right, of what I expect uh, our, our customers to, uh, you know, what I expect their experience to be. And that really drew, drove it home. Um, it was awesome because it allowed us to kind of map out work to say, hey, all right, what's it going to take for us to achieve this one block here? Um, and we can kind of, you know, throw stickies up on the board and map that out and say, all right, well, we need to do this, this, and this. And then we use that for sprint planning to kind of pull down um, some of the actual real work that we, uh, that we wanted to do. What are you doing to uh, get connected with your customers on that? How do you connect with them? Um, yeah, so I've been, I've been kind of reaching out to them and, and having uh, one-on-ones and, and also just pulling in my, my team to have conversations with our customers to figure out, you know, where their pain points are. And, and these are your internal customers. Yeah. 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 Yeah, because, yeah, like, you know, even the app off guys, right, are, are sort of our internal customers at this point because mm-hmm. they're looking for ways to automate their builds and that sort of thing. So we've been kind of getting them access into um, and, and 
enhancing the tool sets that we already had um, to allow them to get in and just do their thing and develop these automations. So kind of taking the, you know, the Netflix approach um, in terms of just getting out of their way, right? Providing the tools and making it easy. Um, and then using that to kind of drive some standards into the organization. Cool. Awesome approach. So as we think about wrapping up, John, as somebody starts to kind of get started on their journey in a, in a large, uh, and I hate the term, this traditional organization. Um, What's a better term? I don't know, but like, <laughs> I guess like slow molasses organization. <laughs> John, do you have enterprise. enterprise, right? But then you get into enterprise and it's like, well, I'm, I'm the Star Trek. I'm enterprise, an enterprise too. And, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there's this whole startup. They're like, well, don't like, don't like exclude us. <laughs> we have to change too. Uh, it was like, we suck too sometimes. Um, and so our problems as, are just as hard as your problems. Right. Yeah. So as, as you go, yeah, cause I have no money, uh, but that's a different issue. <laughs> different problem. Yeah. So as you're trying to bring about this change in a, uh, in a in an organization that's been doing things a certain way for a long time, and like like what's the one tip that you could give someone that you would want to leave someone with? I think the biggest tip is to keep things keep changes small and be willing to experiment. That's been the biggest thing that's really helped us succeed. Folks tend to get stuck in analysis paralysis. You just need to bite the bullet and go for it. You know, and just start networking with people and get out in front of folks and, and talk to people about this stuff. I think the egos are typically driven by the uh, unwillingness or, or, you know, the fear rather, not unwillingness, the fear of change. So once you can kind of, kind of get over that hump, people really rally around some of this stuff because they, you know, pumps them up. It gets them excited about it. Yeah, that, that brings me back to a quote that was attributed to Richard Nixon, but I don't know if it's actually from <laughs> Richard Nixon because it came from the Internet, so who knows. But uh, any change is resisted because bureaucrats have a vested interest in the chaos in which uh, they exist. And usually <laughs> that's what you have to figure out is, like, what are people's vested interests in the organization and mm -hmm. and how you can put that ego aside or, or get them to put that ego aside for sure. Yeah, And, and in, even in small organizations as well. I mean. I had someone, uh, one of my, uh, uh, my senior director the other day quote back uh, Conway's law to me, and I was just like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've won. That's progress. Did you like close your laptop and leave the meeting and be like, I'm done here. I don't need to be here. Yeah, just drop mic and walk out. <laughs> drop your laptop on the middle of the conference room table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, we, uh, we definitely want to thank you for being on. It's been a great conversation. Uh, we've definitely learned a lot. It's definitely, it's great to get back into this and, and talk to other people in these uh, organizations because what we're finding over and over again is there's a very much a common theme and a common pattern, common pattern that seems to work uh, mm -hmm. time and time again. Yeah, definitely, guys. And thanks so much for having me on. Um, I was honored to be here and, uh, and I look forward to, uh, you know, to keeping up with you guys. Yeah. Yeah, we've had a good, uh, John's done a good job of connecting into the community here. We I think we met uh, right before the summit. I think we started getting connected. They had DevOps Enterprise Summit that Gene puts on. Uh, and it's been, I think I love this community. I've been more engaged in this DevOps community than probably any other role I've had in my career. And keep doing what you're doing. I think you're doing some really cool stuff over there. Thanks, thanks, yeah.
And it's been exciting as well. I, I agree. The people here are awesome or in this community are awesome. Um, I've met a lot of really awesome folks through this. Well, All great. right. Once again, thanks, John, for being on. Ross, thank you as well for uh, co-hosting. I don't know why I thank you because it's like half your show. <laughs> thank you I for guess, thanking me, Mike. Yeah, I guess I am the goat father, so I have to bestow you a, little bit of, yeah, <laughs> a little bit of uh, piety onto you from now and now again. <laughs> so thank you uh listener for listening uh if you want to get a hold of us as always you can reach us on twitter at goat can uh on the interwebs at www.goatcan.do or goatcan.com if you're not familiar with the dominican republican top level domain which is dot do <laughs> um, i would add i would add if you want to be on the show uh definitely reach out following the same methods that Mr. Ducey just laid out there uh, because we're always interested in, in guests on the show as well. Yes, definitely. You can reach me personally, Michael Ducey, on Twitter uh, at MFDII. That's Michael Francis Ducey II. And I'm at Ross Clanton, which should be really, really easy for folks to remember. And John, how can people yeah. get a hold of you? Um, so the easiest is, uh, is Twitter for me as well. Um, and that's at jkleintech. So J K L E I N T E C H. Uh, so and we'll we'll post it on the show notes, I'm sure, as well. Yes, exactly. You learn quick. What are you trying yeah, to be? Yeah. A comic, what are you trying to do? Become a co-host? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If, you, if Ross is holding you up, man. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, thank I, you. I was to a our... bit of a boat acre for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, uh, thank you to our listeners. Thank you for listening. And this has been uh, The Goat Farm. And as always, remember, be the goat. goat.